0: My guest today is Lisa Bernbach. She's the author of many books, but she's probably best known for her two books on style, The Official Preppy Handbook and True Prep. She's also well known for her podcast, Five Things with Lisa Bernbach, or maybe even for her tweets. She says that Twitter is her medium and words are her thing, and that's where she excels. We talk about the origins of prep where it came from, how it evolved into becoming the pervasive American style and such a huge thing that still to this day is widely adopted, celebrated, and obsessed over, and how she helped cross prep over into the mainstream. We also talk about her almost disastrous Today Show debut. Here's our chat. I hope you enjoy it. We're live. Yes. I'm recording this. Yay. Do I have your permission to record this? Yes. Only <laughs> only vowels. Oh, <laughs> I'll cut everything else out. We'll go through and uh, and we'll bleep it all out. Yeah, it'll be easy. Uh, you Do you have a serious catalog of podcasts, though?
1: I have, um, I think this week, uh, in February 2021, I have 136. Wow. So, it's over when well did over, it start? It started in um, I think the spring or summer of 2018. Due to my continuous Trump hangover, I was just <laughs> miserable to be around. I was I was occupied with one thing, which is every day looking at the paper and oh no, how could he do this? Or, oh no, Betsy DeVos, or oh no. And um, my boyfriend said, you know, I have an empty audio studio. Why don't you do a podcast? But it wasn't supposed to be, oh no, oh no. The whole point was cheer myself up and maybe cheer other people up too. Mm-hmm. So I adapted uh, what I know to be a sort of classic um exercise and gratitude, which is just think of some things that make your life better Mm -hmm. that you appreciate. I, I'm sure Oprah's made a lot of money on it. I certainly haven't, but. Um,
0: <laughs> Oprah so needs to take give you the monetization course, you know. Yeah,
1: I need that. <laughs> is she a masterclass giver?
0: <laughs> she probably is. That's like the level of masterclass, which I think sometimes makes it, it's like not relatable because you're like, look, I'm never getting, I'm never getting to this point. I think they've overshadowed. Right,
1: right. Masterclass from someone who never even started where you are. Yeah. Right. So um, so that's what it was. It was five things that make life better. Just me talking for a while. And then I wanted to see because I really don't need to record, you know, talking to myself about myself feels like, hi, it's Lisa Birnbach recording from my blow dryer. (laughs) And I'm having the best pretend time. So guests. And then um, because I like to be prepared and because I have been interviewed by many people on my many book tours who were never prepared I know one thing read the book of an author before he or she is on your show and so people were very happy with the interviews and then Simon and Schuster Random House the publicist started approaching me and I've had guests ever since
0: that's amazing and and, and they it, have
1: to share their five things also
0: oh funny yeah I, I i listened to a few of them i you know i i only have a i have a small window of podcast you know i can only like absorb so much just right. you know so much but um you know i i there's it, it's funny just even the the few that i've listened to that i really really liked and i can't really listen to any of the trump stuff i've like even i you know i think maybe in 2018 when you were you know when you were thinking, you know, I'm in a I need some way to process this or whatever, I was thinking, I can't, I just can't I need to it's like the ex you just can't ever see again, you know. Yeah,
1: right. Well I feel that way now as I hear his voice in the in the uh trial, the impeachment trial, I feel like I'm being reabused by my ex-husband <laughs> or something. But I will say that everybody, what what's been interesting in the last four years, without, and we don't have to dwell on this at all, but somehow everything did become political. It became political how I mean, I know there are families that were riven apart by differences. I didn't have that in my family. But yeah. but certainly friendships were. Put on ice, relationships were put on ice or or ended or, or began. And also there was a common conversation in my world of, are you going to let this dominate your day, your brain, or are you not going to do it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would say that my friends were equally divided on both sides. People who said I had to stop reading. I had to stop watching. I had mm-hmm. to stop paying attention and others who just you know, were drawn in by it as I was.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to, oh, for me, I always was thinking, you know, I want to be able to see the other side of the issue, right? And I want to be exposed to some of that stuff. But the moment it becomes sort of in my head, like irrational and sort of rooted in conspiracy theory or or whatever, whatever branch of that tree we want to explore, Mm-hmm. That's when I just can't i I can't take it seriously anymore. And you know i I feel like even like if you look at and we and we can we can move on to talk about lighter things than this. but you, you people that got sort of brainwashed by Facebook, you know, I see that as like is kind of and that's and that's like three things down the line from something that happened, you know earlier. Like I see this as like a real like, an economic issue almost like where there's a lot of people that, you know, because I'm from Ohio originally, I look at like the economics of the job prospects in Ohio, and you know, where I grew up and how challenged that is, and how I can understand to some degree why people would embrace sort of something crazy, because they feel like they have nothing to lose, you know, and, and, and that's not everyone there. But you know i i can understand that but i think we just got so far away from all of those things or this manifested itself in such a weird way that yeah. you know it's it's been it's been pretty strange
1: yeah um yeah and i i agree with you and um having traveled around the country many times through to every state i have to say i I agree with you. I feel that I, I, you know, when you look at, when you look at the faces up close on the news of people protesting, whether they're in the black lives matter protests or they're in the blue lives matter protests, you see the faces of people who have had it, they have had it. Mm -hmm. And as you say, they have nothing left to lose. So why not? Mm -hmm. Why not? make a sign and go and go out there. And, you know, there've been many times in the last four years, I would think, why aren't we rushing to Washington to protest this? I mean, but I could have said that every day. So what I want to say is my podcast was really a a form of uh, Mm self-care in a way so that I would remember Really, truly big things, small things that mm-hmm. I took for granted, uh, you know, and whether how, it's the
0: what, taste of, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You know, That's my lack of ability to conduct podcast interviews. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to forgive me. But how does that change like during the pandemic too? Because it seems like that's almost even oh. more heightened.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, first of all, um, before March, mid-March of 2020, every every interview took place live and in a beautiful studio on 46th Street and Fifth Avenue.
0: Amazing. So
1: there was the pleasure of being in the company of someone who you were going to get to know better
0: mm-hmm. or
1: get to know for the first time or who's... Um, uh, book whose memoir made you feel you knew even too much about them I mean and there were a couple of authors fantastic memoirists who I thought I know this about your sex life or your husband or (laughs) you know uh, uh, um, anyway that that I mean it's it's very nice to look at you while I'm talking to you My what what's happened since is i do the taping from home but Mm -hmm. the software we use doesn't um allow me to look at my guests so that's less fun
0: Mm -hmm. um you're looking forward to getting back into the studio then we should maybe just break and then just talk about um i guess what everyone probably or what a lot of people probably want to talk to you about which is preppy handbook stuff um, and sort of that, you know, I think that origin story is kind of, I read, I read, I've read, you know, versions of it, right. Or sort of bigger and smaller you Probably know the accounts story of it. Yourself. I know the story, but I'm interested in it because to me, it's, I think it's interesting because there's certain waves of preppy that come and go. And I, and I imagine you get swept up in some of that over, you know, like in 2010, when you, you know, released new prep. Uh, or true prep, sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm sure that was like a, and I remember the time around that and that's kind of when I first met you, but that was a big wave of prep. And, and I think it's interesting that like this thing can kind of come and go and, and sort of keep coming back in a lot of, in a lot of ways.
1: Well, as you even know, in the last year, four or five different brands approached me to do things with them. And I have no idea why this year, I mean, why this year is because their designs were prep oriented mm-hmm. And I guess I'm still the master of the of the guard there, but you know what I I sometimes I have no I have no clue. Sometimes I think it's just a um, it's just the pendulum swinging back where where from whence it started. and sometimes I think, it has to do with a version of America mm-hmm. um, as, as maybe perceived by Europeans and, and Japanese. And sometimes I think it's just um, a lack of imagination <laughs> uh, in, mean, a, in a good way. Yeah. I mean, you know, so- let's take that corduroy and make it wider here, whale, here. let's take that corduroy and make it finer whale. Um, you know, because one thing I learned uh, in studying and living the preppy with the preppy wardrobe is when you change a proportion, it could be the same exact thing. But if you change a proportion to something bigger or smaller than you're used to, bigger embroidery of martinis on your pants or, mm-hmm. or uh, wider stripes, or whatever it is or yeah like a seersucker with a different ratio mm-hmm. of crimp you've you've made a statement you're suddenly preppy with a twist you're suddenly new prep you mm-hmm. know but but it's something that people want
0: yeah I mean, that's, but, you know, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why it cycles the way that it does, because everyone sort of plays with it because it's this familiar thing. But I think the familiarity aspect of it uh, is the thing that probably keeps bringing it back because, you know, we're all, for better or worse, I think, thinking back to, you know, when we were younger and sort of how some of these things have ingrained themselves in, and just things being sort of iconic. I think just implant in people's brain in a way that makes it, you know, reminiscent of these things and then makes you long for that, you know, that time or whatever. And we sort of express it through clothes sometimes.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, so, okay. I'll go way, way back to 1980. Yeah. If you can remember, you weren't born then. I was
0: too. I was a toddler, you know, so.
1: Very nice. (laughs) So, so in 1980, I was oh okay. I'm gonna to try to do this very quickly. <laughs> uh, I had a group of friends in college with whom our our shtick was preppy this, preppy that, and we made jokes about ourselves. We made joke, you know. We all we boys and girls we all wore the same thing. And let me apologize and say, men and women, we all wore the same things. <laughs> there was a very nice haberdashery in providence rhode island and of course they didn't sell women's clothes but i i was a model for their catalog or for an ad i think and you know i i because i did buy clothes there for myself mm-hmm. and so i was wearing some kind of shetland sweater and clinging on to the shoulder of of uh, one of the salesmen. And so I don't know, it was just in the air for me. And honestly, while I went to Brown, which is and was, you know, one of the lesser preppy of the Ivy League, it was um, prep enough that I met people who wore two and three collars at once. I had only, you know, two is normal. i met three and four collar people. <laughs> And probably the number of collars you wore was in direct proportion to how bad you were, how badly you were doing in school, you know. <laughs>
0: you what, what, what was the preppiest
1: school? Wore, oh, I would say of the Ivy League, I would say Princeton. No, I mean, that's uncontested.
0: <laughs> uncontested. I, I Yeah, I'm not, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. You know, I assume it wouldn't be Harvard, but. No, no.
1: Uh, and and after and after um, after Princeton, I would say either Yale or Dartmouth, and you know so that's one, two, and three, mm-hmm. and then
0: Cornell, Brown, Penn, Columbia, Harvard, <laughs> you know. So do you do you, a lot of it's like, you? Oh, know, some of it was like the era, right? Like this was a trend in the era, and not, some of it
1: not when. The book happened. So what happened was um, I was writing for the Village Voice and now Mm -hmm. very sadly defunct weekly alternative newspaper, sort of the granddaddy of that. Mm -hmm. And in 1980, my boss, my editor and I had created, we didn't create the craze exactly of the how many like. Does, how many whatevers does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> but we certainly. Do you want me to say it again? Due to the. Siren? No, it's okay.
0: We don't. We're not going to edit it. We'll, we'll just. You know, it's it's real life New York City. Anyone that's been on any Zoom with anyone in New York City is familiar with this true. experience.
1: Okay, okay, true. So, um, um, we we were. What we did was we had a contest, a weekly contest for people to submit their best light bulb jokes. And he and I had gone to a little publisher called Workman Publishing to see if they would publish our book called how many Jewish mothers does it take to screw in a light bulb or whatever we were going to, whichever joke we were going to use. And while we were pitching, I had never pitched anything before. It was the weirdest thing. This a, a woman who. Later was is the woman who posed in the golf outfit in the preppy handbook came up to me and said, you're Lisa Birnbach. I said, I am. She said when I was the child accompanying the big guy and she said, "Um, could you come and see me when you're done here? So we finished our meeting and they said, we'll let you know, which is of course (laughs) French for no, thank you. And, um, I walked in another room and this woman said, we want to do a book about preppies, but we don't have a writer. We've presented it to like 30 people, none of whom wanted to write it. Would you write it? And I said, well, you know, I kind of, I would like to, but I have this job. And anyway, my boss didn't like that. I was offered the book. And within a few days, it was clear that that was going to be a good thing for me to do. Mm -hmm. But I loved my job. I loved being at the Village Voice. I loved the structure of the job. I liked being part of it. But so I left, and um, that was the summer of 1980. And let me just remind you that in 1980, in November, we had an election, and Ronald Reagan became president. But Jimmy Carter was president when I wrote that book and edited it with other people, Mm -hmm. and you know what, in New York, we didn't know that um, old money was going to matter or any money was going to matter. And we didn't think Ronald Reagan was going to be the next president, by the way. And, you know, what did we know? Mm -hmm. A few very young, sort of smart alecky kids. And um, so So and it was a paperback in those days, a book that was had any importance was published in hardcover. Mm -hmm. And I was told by the publisher that this was not going to be their big title. Their big title was a book because they only did paperback called Mouth Sounds. (laughs) Um, It was a book by a guy who who's had a great career making funny sounds, a guy named Fred Newman, who's been on TV and he was. Oh, he was on Prairie Home Companion. He's made a great career of it. That was their big title. And the Preppy Handbook was their, I don't yeah. know,
0: consolation like, yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. So at that point, was it, was it something like prep as a trend or as an idea? Was no. it even something that people no. thought about? It was just like the way things no.
1: happened. It was... I think there were 7,500 copies printed and the idea was they wanted me to do a book about stuff, about duck decoys and squash rackets and martini glasses. And I felt that the stuff wasn't interesting unless you put it in the country club and in the suburban house and in the Woody wagon and so Mm -hmm. on. So so it wasn't, there was no time, there were 10 or 12 weeks to write it. So what it was, was, you know, a guidebook for, I thought for 7,500 people who graduated from Episcopal, from, you mm-hmm. know, Hawkin, from St. Mark's, from Andover, I did not think this book would have any interest or appeal to anyone who wasn't already familiar with it.
0: So what happened when it came out?
1: Well, that's a funny thing. Um, When it came out, first of all, it's a great looking book. For its time, it was revolutionary because instead of having one image, it was broken up into lots of delicious little boxes that you Mm -hmm. could. Um, And it was bound in madras, which was a shirt of mine, which I still have. (laughs) Um, And... um, it it just offered very readable, short blocks and mm-hmm. illustration. I, I, you know, it was cute. and And so that was one thing. Another thing was, this was in the old days when you didn't have to pay to have a good position in a bookstore. Because it was small and because it was inexpensive, it was always by the cash register. So that was just great luck. And then I was on TV every day. The first time I was on TV for the book, The Today Show. And do you know the story about how I was out of it? No, no. Oh, so I um, I was really scared. I used to be very shy, and I was very scared. And in fact, they had they had shot a local New York news spot for me to get used to a camera, but I was so bad in it, they never ran it. <laughs> and that was supposed to be my pre. Today Show thing, and um, I called my parents the night before, and I told them I was scared. And my mother said, "I have just the thing. Come over." Now, my mother has never had just the thing ever before or since. She's always asking me advice. Just the thing turned out to be Valium, so which I had never taken before. My God. So. Um, I had to be at at 30 Rock at like, I don't know, 730 or something, which is very early for me. I had I assembled three piles of clothes, a lacoste polo shirt with a with a Shetland sweater, a down vest with um, with a a turtleneck. I don't know. Lots of clothes because I didn't know what I was going to wear.
0: Do you feel I, pressured do I I'm sure it's hard to like think back on this but do you feel pressure at that point to like project like what the book is about and be like 150%
1: yeah
0: yeah
1: uh, or or 350% <laughs> so and by the way I didn't have much of anything that wasn't really really hardcore preppy at that point mm-hmm. so I had the piles I set alarms all over my house And I took the the Valium. The way I awakened the next day was the publicist from Workman Publishing and my super broke into my apartment because I had, of course, overslept. Of course, I was insensate. And the worst of it was that I believe Donna, the publicist, very much like Cher with... um, her drug addict husband, Greg Allman, I believe she put me in the shower and I leaned on her (laughs) while trying to wake up. I somehow got there in time, but not in time. Oh, I wore every pile together because I couldn't figure (laughs) it out. So now I'm, Unable to bend any limb because it's wearing so many layers. My lips are stuck to my teeth because I'm parched. I'm not quite awake, but not nervous. That was (laughs) true, Mom. I was not nervous. I was not awake. And uh, I came out with wet hair. Oh, my gosh. And I was so deadpan that everybody thought I was kind of a freak and then they wanted to buy the freak's book.
0: (laughs) Do you really think it, do you really think it helped? I mean, being on the Today show is a huge thing regardless, right?
1: Well, in those days, we should remind your listeners that in 1980 when you were two, Oh, I better remind you in 1980, when you were two, the today show was one of the giant, giant legs up you could have if you had written a book, It sold books. There were only three morning shows in 1980. Yeah. And uh, I believe the today show was number one. I mean, mean, if it, it it was either number one or number two, but it was, it had a huge audience and um, you know, there, this was before, Everything. Internet. <laughs> I mean, there was cable, but yeah, it was huge. You have it to hand and people read books a lot more than they do now.
0: You know, I was thinking about this actually. Well, one, I wanted to say you have to hand it to the publicist for just having the, you know, authority to just go to your house, you know, not sort of accepting, I can't get in touch well, with Well, they've her. been
1: calling me, this is before cell phones, everybody, they've been calling me, They she figured out how to reach my super, maybe she took a cab from, I mean, it was the olden days, but that Valium was quite potent. I mean, if you've never
0: had a Valium before, it was. Have you ever taken Valium since?
1: Yes, <laughs> that would be less.
0: So so if yeah, I was thinking about this, though, if this happened, in, like creating the book, if it were going to happen now, I feel like it probably would have turned into some. I mean, it wouldn't have happened the same way. It maybe would have. But I, I just think like, oh, Instagram has ruined like every yeah. piece of content yeah. or a lot yeah. of people's potential to create something really interesting because they just end up doing it on Instagram for, you know, and there's no point it would have been 12 slides on an Instagram account.
1: A hundred percent. And I also feel like, uh, if I had deployed the same energy and creativity and, and desire for, um, for being clever that I have on Twitter I could have written seven books in the time (laughs) I've been tweeting. So yes, it does. It definitely zaps you of all that stuff, all that good juicy stuff. But, um, right. The preppy handbook would be, um, an Instagram story and I could go to hell. But (laughs) luckily, uh, I, I came out before there was any such thing as an influencer and, um,
0: but now you're so seen as like, I mean, as you l- l- literally wrote the book on prep. Now you, you know it's like, you, it's funny because you I've heard you say this and it's on your website and other you know I've just seen this come up. You're like I've written twenty books. You know besides. Oh this yeah, I book. know,
1: I know. Uh, one of the funniest things that happened when I was on tour with True Prep, which was I won't say a sequel, but I will say follow up.
0: Mm-hmm. And you were at the launch. Um. I found those pictures the other day, actually, from the launch. Oh. Yeah, I I have them.
1: Oh. Uh, I'll share them with you. Oh, good. Um, One of the funny things was uh, early early on in the tour, I was um, signing books in Washington, D.C. And when I say that, of course, I mean Georgetown. And um, somebody asked me what I'd done between book one and book two which was a span of 30 years, because I never thought I would revisit the prep world in print again. Um, And I told the truth. I said, well, I wrote a college guidebook. I wrote a bunch of those. I was on television for three years and I did this and I had three kids and I saw the audience like falling asleep. I mean, it was, It was um, less than a minute. Maybe it was more than a minute, but they were there. They lost interest. And then I said, and then there were those years I was in rehab and they perked right up. (laughs) So um, I began to realize that to the world at large, I've written two books and I was in a coma or in rehab for 30 (laughs) years. And that's really all, or or up in the big house. That's all you need to know.
0: Do, do you feel like that, uh, yeah, it's interesting like that it defines you in a way that you, but you you are, I mean, you're, when I, when I see you today, you know, you're wearing a gingham shirt and a Shetland sweater and.
1: What else do I have? You tell me, I don't have anything else. I mean, there, there came a time that I wanted to break out of preppiness and break out of people's expectations. And I bought myself, I thought the most opposite. Well, it was natural. It was leather, but it was like a leather jumpsuit that I spent a fortune on and I wore probably twice. And both times I was embarrassed to be seen in it. (laughs) And, you know, there's something about me that I don't think I look good in. I mean, I can wear tailored clothes. They don't have to be, quote unquote, preppy. I think if I put them on, they become preppy in a way Mm -hmm. i don't think i i mean i do like some indian influence floaty stuff but you know i just can't i just can't go fully into ruffles and softness it's just not my thing
0: it's interesting that you you would say uh that you were shopping at the haberdasher and and, in buying men's clothes and which i feel like is sort of a, a pretty big jump for people to take they wouldn't have the sort of not not guts to do it but style like inherent belief in their own personal style right to go and do that. Oh.
1: Well that's that's a very flattering way to look at it. I will say that in 1978 when you were born <laughs> Providence Rhode Island was a different city from the city it is now. Mm-hmm. There was there was no place to shop if you were I mean that I knew of. One went to Boston to shop Mm -hmm. and there was a mall. uh, uh, There was a mall somewhere um, in between like Fall River or something, but you needed a car. You didn't need a car to get to Boston because there were buses and trains. Mm -hmm. So but yes, I did. I did know that I could buy the whatever the smallest Demi Petron or whatever the smallest mm-hmm. size of a of a classic Lacoste shirt was I could buy the smallest one there and I did buy one in pink and I mean I would I grew up wearing Lacoste so it wasn't I, yes I I it's right. true though I Ooh. I shop there and then I had a bright green a bright green I may still have it in the sort of archives um Fair Isle Shetland sweater from, I don't know where. And, um, I put it over my pink shirt once. It was like one of those, you Mm -hmm. know, peanut butter and chocolate. What? (laughs) Um, and
0: I thought they looked very sharp together. That's funny. Do you, do you think, um, Do you think the state of PrEP now, like if you if you I've been thinking about this a lot, especially like last year with what happened with Black Lives Matter and the the state of the, you know, systemic racism and the social sort of climate of America, um, like within that movement. And you think about PrEP and and I I often wonder, is it you know, has it been decoupled from like the other associations at this point.
1: Oh, that's like, an excellent question. That's really excellent. When when I even heard you just say Black Lives Matter, systemic racism, I thought, wow, prep is so out of touch or so irrelevant. And honestly, as much as I love attributes of preppiness, particularly the clothes and I love good manners, which, you know, anybody can have, that's not elitist Mm -hmm. or any way or anything, you know, um, it definitely seems beside the point during all the unrest. I think um, on the other hand, if it's silently there providing warmth and layers while you're at, at a protest, good.
0: Um, I don't, I don't mean it like that. I just mean like in, in general, like, you know, I think that there's like, even if you look at it from like a liberal conservative standpoint, right. I think a lot of people would look at PrEP and sort of the origin of it as very conservative. Right. But it's actually not like clothes don't have political views. Right. Right. They're not political. Yeah. That's
1: right. But also it's so funny that you say that because I believe that probably 60 or 80 percent of americans think that preppiness is aligned with conservatism but um you know i never felt that way because Mm -hmm. i wasn't that way and um most of the preppies i grew up with or in college were uh democrats and i i grew up hearing about the kennedys and the roosevelt's from the east coast
0: Mm
1: -hmm. so um, that, that world was, you know, uh, uh, tweed jackets and corduroys. Yeah. So, oh, and, and, you know, Harriman, Averill Harriman, you know, doing good works and, and enjoying the Adirondacks and the outdoors. So I, I didn't understand that what I was allegedly bringing mm-hmm. out was conservative,
0: yeah, I, I don't I think it's actually we're at the point where this stuff doesn't have, you know, we we understand that these things aren't tied to a political movement or William yeah. F. Buckley or, you know, or the Kennedys. It's it's sort of now they're just, I think, accepted as not you know, accepted as sort of a iconic American thing, regardless of which side of the aisle, like anyone's viewpoint was um, to me, like that's that's the big opportunity for prep. And that's to me, what gives it longevity in that it can be worn by different people and not reflect a, you know, a point of view. And I think that's sort of, it's good. It's good to maybe have it break out of that, you know?
1: Well, I believe I said on the first chore in 1980, I believe I said, you know, once you're dressed this way, you're, you look, acceptable. You look like you're upwardly mobile, but you could be a communist. I mean, it doesn't (laughs) betray your inner ideology in any way. Now, I will say this. In 1980, when um, I started promoting the book, um, every interviewer would start, Lisa, what is a preppy? And in 2010, when I went on my second book tour, (laughs) I Um, didn't, I wasn't asked that question once. And when I traveled uh, uh, overseas to, to talk about true prep, what floored me was no talk about, I mean, there was no question in Hamburg, what is a preppy? Hamburg is Germany's most preppy city and that's how they dress, but is that, they. Would is say, that
0: widely known? I've I've never heard that, to be honest. That Humber, no, Humber. That's
1: what. That's what I. I'm not a Germanologist. I should be, because that's where Bernbach is from. But. Um, that's what I. That's what I've been. That's. Been, it's been explained to me that way. It's the banking capital. And, oh, I see. Yeah. And there's yachting, there's a lot of water over there. (laughs) So um, um, people in Hamburg said to me, well, this is how we dress here, but how do they dress in Mexico City? And in Mexico City, they say, well, this is how we dress here, but how do they dress in Tokyo? And you know more than anybody, Tokyo is is preppy on steroids. Yeah. So, Yeah, So it's become a default way of dressing around the world. It used to be, I remember once going to Paris in the maybe 90s and thinking, okay, I'm gonna get something not preppy. And I bought a sweater with huge shoulder pads. And when were the, no, that must've been the 80s still, right, with the big shoulders. (laughs) It was a Claude Montana sweater. And I brought it back and I was so proud that I had, you know, sort of found Something that unlike the leather pantsuit, I could really wear with my corduroys, meanwhile, the best cashmere sweaters and button down shirts you can buy now in Paris or in Italy, or yeah. you know somewhere that isn't new york, so yeah. it's it's a universal safe look,
0: yeah, it's I mean,
1: when I say lack of imagination. I'm saying that in a complimentary way because, you know, some things just work.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to me because of the book that there's, it's one of the few, I don't want to say trends, but styles of dressing or point of views or however you want to categorize it. It's one of the few where there's actually a point when you can sort of say, this is when uh, like mainstream e- acceptance of this happened based on the book right when the when when that happens it's almost yeah. like you you helped create critical mass around something people had known but maybe outside that weren't able to quantify as easily or directly right but with other things i think it's it's like w- if you're like a biker like there's no you know I, I don't know that anyone like wrote the book i might be wrong it might be like the marlon brando movie that maybe yeah
1: yeah the wild, uh, the, the wild ones, the wild ones. You know what? I think, um, uh, that's uh, thank you for the credit. I don't know if I deserve the credit. I do know that I've outlasted a lot <laughs> of the big names. Uh, you know, when you think of big names of prep, you mostly, one thinks about the designers mm-hmm. who are considered preppy and, um, you know, some of the old guard. When you mentioned William F. Buckley before, I talked to Chris Buckley, his son, who's a, a wonderful satirist on my podcast. Um, but a lot of the old guard is gone.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, it's in,
0: it's interesting. So, w- what happened when the book came out? Um, like, can, I know there's there's been like a kind of an interesting sort of you know issue with the book in general like why did it get reprinted you know did it like whatever happened with that like where does it stand with the book
1: with the preppy handbook
0: yeah sorry yeah
1: um that book has been out of print since i think 1995 i think it was in print for 15 years and it I, i took it out of print um i was the I was the engineer of that because they were releasing so few books a year at that point. It was a dribble and it didn't Mm -hmm. seem like it was worth anybody's time. So I thought, well, I'll take it and maybe somewhere down the road I'll republish it. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's been difficult for just a couple of thorny reasons. So it's still out of print. It's is it, still is available.
0: That owed, is that owed to you? This being sort of like your first ever. It's like you don't have the rights to your masters or something like that. If you're like an it's artist, a like, were you, like you didn't that. know.
1: I didn't know. I didn't have good advice. Um, my agent when I I uh, signed that book contract is long dead. I don't think I ever heard from her again. Um, <laughs> Um, nice
0: doing business with you. Don't have yeah, a exactly. me. Exactly,
1: exactly. And uh, actually, the people at Workman Publishing haven't been very uh, responsive. So, yes, I own, I own the copyright, and I own basically ninety eight percent or ninety nine percent of it. But the person who owns the one percent has been very uncooperative. Interesting. So that's what's held it up. Um, and t- so the book is available uh, you know people can buy used books and they're all over the internet and mm-hmm. I sometimes buy them um, now they're <laughs> getting a little
0: price you know to give what to do people. you do with them oh to give them to it w- yeah that's funny yeah. but they're that's... expensive now what are they I haven't looked I have a copy I don't know what what printing my copy is though I'll have to look, but it was one of the, you know, so we, I worked at J Press in 2005 and that was sort of one of the books that was on every designer's desk, right? And Mm -hmm. I imagine like Ralph Lauren, you know, it's on every designer's desk Um, and Take Ivy. And that's sort of how, you know, I stumbled across Take Ivy was, you know, all these Japanese designers were giving it to the designers in America. And it was just this thing, that you know just got was floating around and kind of people hadn't seen um i hadn't seen it
1: until 2010. i don't think i saw take ivy i either discovered it when i was working on true prep or i certainly heard of it for the first time when i was working on true prep Mm -hmm. and i may not have seen it till i uh got to japan Oh, interesting. 2011. But then I saw it everywhere. Yeah. I mean, when, it's a big, it's a big hit.
0: When Powerhouse got the rights to it. So they got one of the guys that worked at Powerhouse, this guy, Wes, um, had reached out to me when it was, you know, because that just went viral. And that's sort of what I don't want to say, like, put my website on the map. But that gave me a lot of, you know, I got a lot of attention for that, just, you know, Publishing maybe that's this. where
1: maybe that's where I found out about it.
0: Yeah maybe, maybe I, I you,
1: did on your on a, on a continuous lead. I will say I would like to give you a lot of credit for um, making the heritage brand seem so relevant which you did with the pop-up flea and with your former business mm-hmm. and there were there were um, manufacturers good, Old manufacturers in Maine and New England, especially in the shoe business and the weaving business, that you focused a light on, which was fantastic, and I think it's still fantastic. And you did collaborations that I admired. And um, yeah,
0: th- thanks for saying that. that. It's no, it's cool. It's Those true. people are like toiling in obscurity, right? And everyone's right. obsessed with all this like throwaway garbage. And to me, that always like you know if if some little company can survive for a hundred years, you know, and especially when you live through an event like a pandemic, you're like, this is amazing that they made it through a stock market crash, a depression, a war, like all these things, you know, and it still persists.
1: Well, I was I was very moved um, by the story of the I think it's called Malden Mills um, in Massachusetts, where the owner. Was there a big fire? It's in True Prep, actually. Mm-hmm. I believe I wrote about it. Um, he's a manufacturer of polar fleece material, and of course, that's a giant. That was a like a giant blasphemy for me to, you know, the who 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 my bio was. Lisa Bernbach wears natural fibers. <laughs> I think that was my whole bio, <laughs> and here I'm touting polar fleece as the biggest thing to ever happen to prep them. And I believe it was, but you know what? That guy had a terrible fire in his factory and his town was basically supported by his company. His, Mm his, his factory was the biggest business in town. And he took a pledge that somehow he would tighten his belt, somehow keep everyone on salary until they got back, Mm -hmm. back to, to business as usual. And I thought that was heroic. And I want to go back to what you said about coming from Ohio and seeing the unemployment and so on, you know, in the 1980s, when I traveled to every state, I saw some of the most beautiful architecture in what were formerly main streets of cities that were formerly thriving. Mm -hmm. And, Particularly, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, the train station in small cities that have been recommissioned to be a mall or a a food court Mm -hmm. or a condo or or, or nothing or nothing. I mean, Providence has some extraordinary architecture that, you know, a bank building that you could get Mm -hmm. an artist loft in or something. And you realize that those cities, they've moved or they, this part shut down and they opened a, I don't know, a mall with a, I don't know, the the cities that just died because factories died. Mm -hmm. And when you see the crowding in LA and the homeless people, and you see the, the crowding in big cities like New York and Chicago, you think, God, you could live in one of those cities for so much less money. You could, I know there, there are cities in Pennsylvania that have been taken over by artists, mm-hmm. but now I'm reading that everyone from California is moving to Boise or moving to Austin or, you know.
0: Yeah, I think I there- mean, yeah.
1: There are all these beautiful cities that existed as somewhat cosmopolitan places all over America with train stations and and thriving populations and people moving into them, not just people moving out. And it's it's really sad and it would be so wonderful if we could breathe new life into into some of those um, yeah. downtowns that are pretty uh, desiccated. I mean, I know Detroit has come back somewhat mm-hmm. with that yeah. kind of thinking.
0: Have you ever been to Burlington Arcade in London? Sure I have. You know. Yeah, it's beautiful, yes. right? Like one it's of the beautiful. most beautiful places to shop on Earth.
1: Yes. Yeah, there,
0: there is. Oh, I don't want to. They, actually, I learned that recently there's a replica of that, by the way, in Pasadena. Have you ever been there? it's no. like, like a full yeah my friend like opened a little shop there which is insane and i was like is that london he's like no no this is pasadena i'm like i can't believe this seriously and yeah. do they
1: call it burlington
0: i think so yeah yeah the burlington arcade in in london sorry i'll get to my point but is actually owned by this guy joseph sitt who owns thor equities he's an american guy Yeah, it's like a he's like an interesting guy we talked to he was like very supportive of us trying to do pop-up flea at some of his properties in new york he was like always came to our events and whatever but there was a there was a beautiful arcade in cleveland that is just the a stunning stunning building and it's basically empty you know there's like nothing in there and i'm like this is just such it's a travesty you know but um i think the pandemic is helping people understand they don't need to be in you know in New York or in LA and they can, you know, it's making the sort of relaxation of, you know, working remotely is is coming. And I think, you know, Elon Musk is building Starlink. So like everyone's gonna have internet access everywhere. No, I just think like it, it's actually, it could happen. And, you know, that's like a factor of like investing in education and, you know, providing equality with internet access and all those things. I mean, it's, it's gonna be difficult for manufacturing, I think, to come back to this country, because it's not just the, when the factory closes, it's the when an industry or a sector closes and all the supporting businesses, Yeah. like when footwear in New England starts to go offshore, it, all the machinery, all the suppliers, everything that supports those factories and mm-hmm. all of that sort of collective knowledge of how to make shoes, leaves it doesn't come back you can't you know then it it makes it just so prohibitively expensive and difficult and you know all of that all of the technical skill is gone it's just it's a compounding thing
1: yeah yeah and and when you lose the shoe people you lose the lace people and when Mm -hmm. you lose Mm -hmm. the lace people you use yes it's a domino effect yeah and, and you're right it won't come back and Look, I don't know when you were last in New York, but um, store-level, ground-level retail is hanging on by a very thin thread. And um, what was was a neighborhood that you might go to just to hang out and see some cool stores?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, it's Mm -hmm. nothing. And why would people come to New York to shop if they have the same exact shops where they are, or if they're only shopping um, online.
0: Yeah, I think depending on how the landlords react to all of this and how stubborn they are, I think it actually could be, this could be a turning point for a better New York and it'll sort of open up the possibility of actually having a store that's interesting and, you know, people could actually then afford it. Like the rent would be, you know, it'll make it so it's possible for more creative things to actually happen than maybe have in the last five years. Right. We'll see. I mean, that's, I'm, I want to be optimistic on, on that. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I think it's, it's going to be tricky. You know, I was thinking, and one of, one of the things I wanted to ask you is about some of these, you know, the bigger brands that are sort of the more established prep brands and, You know like brooks brothers and what happened with them and Mm -hmm. last night i watched the ralph uh ralph warren uh very ralph documentary that's on hbo um yeah and and it just had me it it had me thinking because ralph warren outside of you know making really nice product and having sort of a very cohesive you know i guess the execution is just wonderful and sort of world-class but it's all sort of rooted in this idea of aspirational lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I think that that sort of has, that has fundamentally changed now. I, I don't think like the, the, everyone's lit, you know, every kid is growing up in America thinking they want to be an influencer. Right. You know, Did you, you see the
1: documentary Fake Famous? Yeah, Nick. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I did. It sort,
1: um, of, it sort of broke my heart, you know, being famous for being famous. <laughs> um, you know, strikes me as a singularly dumb and uh, uh, short-term thinking. You know, wh- who cares? I, I mean, what is the famous thing that they want? What I what I understood from Nick Bilton's um, documentary was that people want to be famous so they get free stuff.
0: Yeah. Yikes. Um, I mean, which, which you saw actually happen. And, you know, the one girl, um, you know, just basically like now is she is an influencer. She has like 400,000 Instagram followers, and is probably just getting free stuff all the time,
1: you know? You and, know, so, what? and offloading it on Tradesy.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I spent a certain amount of time like going on press trips and whatever, getting invited to things. And I've gotten, you know, I've done my I've sinned. Um, you know, if this is confession, I'll, I'll get to that. <laughs> um, but, you know, we would go on these trips. They would be amazing trips. And a lot of times it's like be- in beautiful places with terrible people. And it's not worth it. It's not, you know, it's like if you had a choice, I'll give you a trip to Tuscany, but you have to go with people you hate. Do you want to go?
1: Right. The first time, yes. And then (laughs) never again. Depends on where your
0: your status is on on the airline. You know, if you need the points, you might go.
1: And if you need the miles. Um, um, Michael, you, but you have been very vigorous and rigorous with yourself, and you have had a come to Jesus moment, and you are, um, you've had, it's like you had an incredible trajectory. Um, I don't think you planned becoming the entrepreneur. I could be wrong. I never asked you if you planned the entrepreneurship that you um, very comfortably seemed to, I, I didn't see your stress, so I don't know about that side of you, but I have seen you run things, complicated things with lots of pieces. I've seen you, I, I, I we bumped into one another when you were, um, on a, on a, one of those, um, junkets at, um, I, I'm going to call it
0: Forest Hills because I'm old school, but oh, at, yeah. the, at US the Tennis Test Open. Um, I'll never turn down an invitation to the tennis because no. going to the U.S. Open is like the best, one the of best. the best experiences. Yeah.
1: It's the best. It's the best, but it's better going with you because you had the VIP box. I was out in the. <laughs> I, was out in the I, in I don't
0: the, get invited to that anymore. I've I've worn out my welcome there too. Uh, I
1: but you know what? Um I don't think everybody's had that um, epiphany that you've had, and I think, uh, you know, if your if your goal in life is to be an influencer, you're not, you're really not helping people. Your life has, I guess, a certain kind of transactional meaning, but but it seems to be all about collecting goods and mm-hmm. and that's it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all superficial. We see how highly curated these people are and what was heartbreaking. Cause I'm a huge Paul Smith fan. I love Paul Smith's women, women's clothes so much. Mm-hmm. And um, so I see the pink wall wow. and I, think, Oh, that's the store I go to. And of course people are doing these ridiculous poses and it, it, To me, it's sad, you know, it's just sad because nobody looks at, nobody who's taking selfies is looking at themselves and thinking, I'm really a homely person, but if I do this, I'll feel good about myself. Everybody thinks that everybody looks great. And it, I mean, there's so much else to a life. Yeah. Then what then appearances and um
0: I mean I, I'm terrified by the prospect of, you know, my daughter me trying to explain, you know. I was listening to a podcast the other day with this with Gary Vaynerchuk, which I who I don't normally listen to because I i he's sort of a big advocate of like the hustle culture, which I can't take. Oh
1: yeah. What's the name? I've never even heard of him Gary
0: Vaynerchuk. Vaynerchuk. He's like a I don't even know how to describe him. Now he's like a hugely popular, like social media guy. He has a big agency. I actually, in 2007, eight, like was watching him because I was into wine. He owned a wine store in New Jersey. He's an interesting guy, but some guy was calling in and basically asking him about like his seven-year-old daughter and she wants to become an influencer. And how should he, like, how should the father manage Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. sort of thing? And, And it just made me think like, I am just, shaken with the prospect of this. And- I,
1: that that's gonna have to be over because in a way anyone with an Instagram, it's as you said before, everybody's a brand now. Yeah. And everybody f- it feels it feels like everybody's selling. And by the way, I don't use Instagram well. I've been told I should use it more. You may have noticed I'm trying, but <laughs> it's mostly pictures of my dog now because everybody likes dogs. I don't really- You I go don't, for
0: the likes, smart.
1: No, I just don't even, I don't know how to write on Instagram. I only know how to put pictures. And honestly, my my medium is Twitter. It's, yeah. it's words. But yeah. um, I think that, You know, as an influence, if I if I wanted to be an influencer now, I'd have to change basically everything I do, starting with, you know, plastic surgery. (laughs) Let me talk about plastic surgery. Do you want to? It's had a boom during the pandemic. Yeah, perfect time. I can't believe I didn't do it. I mean, you could recover with nobody seeing you. You say, oh, my zoom is broken. And then when the bruises go away and the stitches are gone. Oh, I got a new light. I got a new light.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's a filter. It's a filter. Let me let me go back to let me go back to one thing. And then we can we can wrap this up. You probably have bolognese spaghetti bolognese to make for dinner
1: i haven't Um, decided but it might have been spaghetti bolognese as a matter uh, of
0: fact which i know is one of your five things i was i was listening to you talk about (laughs) spaghetti bolognese i liked it um what do you think about the little worlds this will like converge this topic and some bigger topics that we're talking about What about like the highly curated, super potent prep people on Instagram? Like, do you ever come across those things and see, and see like the, you know, there's a few of them that have like significant followings and everything is like a Wagoneer or like a, you know, canoe in Maine or like Newport or.
1: Okay. Here's the thing about, about me, um, I did not know that the preppy world was so evolved on social media 10 years ago Mm -hmm. until people like you told me, and I had never, and I think that's fair to say as in not once ever looked up the official preppy handbook um, because I wrote that book. I know what's in it. There's, I mean, it never occurred to me that it Mm had fan clubs and, had spawned all these blogs and stuff, and then at one point I thought I found out I was overwhelmed. I got kind of the bends. I whoa! I couldn't I couldn't take it all in, and I thought I'll write about them and I'll mention them all, but there were literally too many to mention, and mm-hmm. some came and and disappeared and so on. So, so the world of 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 Honest to God, preppiness on line is something I don't know that much about. Um, on Instagram, my friend Arthur, who works at Brooks Brothers, still mm-hmm. told me about one one guy. He said you got to follow him, and he's a guy in uh, <clears throat> excuse me in L.A. who considers himself, you know, I guess you probably know him some young guy who considers himself totally prep wears a lot of pink clothing <laughs> um has a dog I, I i'm sure there's something i we have a dog trainer and for our puppy and she website. And I said to her, your Instagram is dog porn. And she said, I know, but it's what people need right now. And I think of the real estate porn and the dog porn and the um, I look at a lot of um, beautiful table settings in Tuscan fields porn. <laughs> and, and I'm sure the main the main beach house or the, you know, yeah. the canoe, the canoe, the boathouse, I guess I should check it out. It might make me feel really good. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure people have the time to make really good stylistic decisions now.
0: Yeah. I think it's, I think you you might be, you might be encouraged by it and you might be discouraged by it at the same time, you know, and, and look, I'm not, whatever makes people happy, I think is what they should do. I I don't, you know, it's not ruining my life or ruining anyone's life. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, that's what they're into. It's cool. I think it just, sometimes it, you know, prep specifically sometimes is taken very far. Um, and to me, it like spins out of control. I, you know, I'm much more of like, I like some of these things because they've like a fair sweater. It's always been relevant. It will always be relevant to me. Like that's a no brainer. Why do I need to try to reinvent something that's already perfect? Right. <laughs> so to me, like that's, that's my draw to prep um, based on some of that sort of long history. you know, I didn't grow I grew up blue collar, so I have no natural exposure to any of this stuff, you know. And so but it's interesting just as a genre or as a aesthetic choice, there's a lot of different entry points to it. And you know everyone's kind of putting their spin on it and it's in that sense like it's a lot of fun, you know that it does that it's very shared, you know, and people can identify with it.
1: You know what I like about it too. Um, it doesn't demand that you be, Six, two, and totally buff
0: mm-hmm.
1: or a string beam, it just doesn't have a size um requirement. Mm-hmm. it's very kind in that way mm-hmm. i've always liked that I've always liked the generosity. The sweater's lumpy and big that's fine. you can mm-hmm. gain or lose the wrap skirt is such a generous. Lovely thing. you can tighten it, of course, if you lose weight, but if you don't, nobody's gonna punish you for yeah. it. yeah, and you're not gonna feel bad. I do think that, um I was very surprised that people felt that preppy was something to talk about. I thought, okay, we laid it out. Now you know, <laughs> what else is there to say? <laughs> That's it. Um, and in a way, there, you know, there are tweaks like polar fleece, like um, manufacturing stuff with a little bit of stretch in it so that it fits you better. Mm-hmm. Um, different colors that come and go, different designers that come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them, as you pointed out earlier, are in bad shape. Lily Pulitzer, bad shape. Brooks Brothers, maybe bad shape, you know, probably bad shape. Um, but but I, think that, away.
0: I don't think all of that is, I think part of that is tied to it being a much more prep previously being much more of a mass, you know, there were, you know, when you alluded to the today show, there was three morning shows. Now, you know, if you take that analogy right now, there's a million different ways that someone could dress and there's not mm-hmm. three like when a lot of these brands sort of rose to prominence and and Brooks Brothers probably aside from that due to the the, the long history of it but
1: right you know i think well, it's a function for- of
0: that and the business model and other things you know
1: yeah i mean i always found it funny when brooklyn was starting to be the cool borough that it is that um you know you'd see it at somebody wearing um uh, clearly unwashed clothes with topsiders or uh, unwashed clothes and and their and um I don't know a uh, fair isle sweater you know or the norwegian sweater from ll mm-hmm. bean and you thought okay I got it yeah got it you're hip but <laughs> but um look I'm very flattered by the um, by the way the preppy handbook has been Uh, treated over time or regarded over time. It's definitely, you know, a book that if I hadn't written it, I would have wanted to have written.
0: Mm -hmm. I
1: felt like I had a take on, on this world that would be right for the book because as a Jewish New York city native, you know, I didn't have the suburban Mm -hmm. driving, country club upbringing. But in New York at private school, it's, you're there. Mm-hmm. The style is there. All the boys in my class wore tweed blazers or corduroy blazers with their boot cut jeans and wallabies. Every boy, I think it was a rule. And the girl, I mean, it, it just it gave me perspective, but it gave, because I was outside, but I was inside. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was, I was very happy with how the book came out and I felt like, okay, that's it. I did a book. Now I'll go get a job. <laughs>
0: <Or> <laughs> and you I'll... gave up your job to do it. basically. I did.
1: I did. Yeah. That was, that was a hard choice. I mean, I did, I did agonize over it, but, um, Obviously, it was it was a good choice.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. Lisa, it was nice talking to you. Thanks for spending the time with me.
1: Oh, Michael, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Really, you have a lot of interesting insights into things that I think about, too.
0: It's the podcast that no one wanted from me. <laughs> 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 but, you know, just no one has a choice. You know, here I am, you know. Anyway, nice nice talking to you, Lisa. Thank you.
1: Nice talking to you, too. Thank you.